Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Vermont journalist Sue Halpern reports on national issues for The New Yorker magazine, where she is a staff writer. Her recent reporting has included stories about the 40-year effort to ban abortion pills, the promise and peril of artificial intelligence, and threats to democracy. I've just become just so concerned that that there is there are people for whom the rule of law, which is kind of a basic um, fundamental part of, of our democracy, that the rule of law is kind of up for grabs. One topic that she has covered in depth is the effort to subvert elections. She has written about candidates for Secretary of State who deny that Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election, attempts by election deniers to access electronic voting systems, and the Republican war on voting. Recently, Halpern was shocked to discover that Vermont, her home state, is currently considering allowing internet voting, which she reports that experts have described as, quote, a security nightmare. The provision is tucked into legislation, H-429, that was approved last month by the Vermont House and is currently being considered in the Senate. Halpern is the author of seven books, including the best-selling A Dog Walks Into a Nursing Home and Four Wings and a Prayer, which was made into an Emmy-nominated film. She was a columnist for Mother Jones, Ms., and Smithsonian Magazine, and has written on science, technology, and politics for the New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, The New Republic, and the New York Review of Books. She is a scholar-in-residence at Middlebury College, where she directs the program in narrative journalism. Halpern is also a board member of the Vermont Journalism Trust, the parent organization of Vermont Digger. I began by asking Halpern, What she found when she researched her 2020 New Yorker article, Why You Can't Just Vote on Your Phone During the Pandemic. Well, what I found was that every computer science expert who has looked into internet voting is against it because it is insecure. It is really not a comparable um, comparison to to internet banking or shopping or anything like that because it requires not simply kind of this one-way transaction, but it requires a two-way transaction so that you get your ballot online and you print it out, or but then you send it back and it gets converted into a PDF and it's in that transmission um, from you to your election official with this PDF that um, it's been demonstrated over and over again that those PDFs can be changed um, without anybody knowing, especially you. It also seems to demand that a system do two contradictory things at once, ensure your identity and ensure your anonymity, which your banking and Amazon certainly don't want you to be anonymous. No, not at all. And and the anonymity part of it is problematic also um, for you. Um, because you don't really know if your ballot has been received. And you also, even if you do know if your ballot has been received, you don't know how it's been received. So you don't know what um, has happened, like who you've actually voted for. Now, it's not often that your national reporting for The New Yorker uh, dovetails with something going on in your own neighborhood. And this issue has actually bubbled up, in fact, this week in Vermont. Talk about what's happening in Vermont with internet voting 
or as it's called, electronic ballot return. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was kind of odd. Like, you know, I wrote this piece three years ago, almost three years ago, um, and spent a fair amount of time talking to the, the computer science experts who have studied this, as well as uh, people in the government who have also studied this, including, you know, the Department of Defense and um, the NIST office and CISA, which is our um, basically overseas elections for uh, the Department of Homeland Security. And then suddenly, you know, here it was kind of snuck into um, a different bill. You know, we're not necessarily only voting on internet voting where, you know, the legislature is looking at a bunch of stuff and it, it kind of got slotted in there. Um, and I was just surprised to see it in our state because we have such robust voting regulations, such open voting regulations. And um, I was just surprised it's expensive, it's insecure. And the state legislature, the House, um, just kind of blithely said, okay, no problem. And I was like, no problem. But you've written about that there is, in fact, a very aggressive lobbying campaign going on to get internet voting passed around the country. And the lobbying is done by the people who stand to profit from it. Well, the first part of the lobbying is done by a billionaire named Bradley Tusk, who um, I don't believe that he personally stands to um, gain financial benefit from it. But this is his, you know, raise on debt. He, he, he so deeply wants the country to vote on their phones um, that he's uh, designated a, a large portion of his fortune to pursuing this. Meanwhile... Um, there are uh, a number of commercial companies that are um, pursuing this alongside him who obviously have a financial benefit um, if it gets um, adopted in various municipalities. Um, and what we learned just last week is that they have mounted this campaign, this kind of stealth campaign to um, negate all of the computer science experts who for years have demonstrated how insecure this is. And they did this by secretly paying off um, uh, academics at the University of Washington um, to basically say, no, these guys, these, these experts are all wrong. And um, they did this basically writing the, the <laughs> writing their own uh, PR campaign and, and paying off these academics to say it was their their you know um, expertise, their learned opinion that that all these other guys, all these other computer scientists were absolutely wrong. Um, you reported last week in the New Yorker on concerns about the newest iterations of artificial intelligence engines that can write essays, compose songs, and communicate in a seemingly human voice. Um, the most common popular one or the one that's gotten the most uh, news is uh, probably ChatGPT, <clears throat> but there are others, and in fact, others that are surpassing ChatGPT in sophistication. Um, what are your concerns about these artificial intelligence artificial intelligence engines. And if I had real intelligence, I probably would not have stumbled over the pronunciation of it the way uh, an AI thing would. 
Um, you know, you don't know that. Um, the AI actually stumbles over lots and lots of things. Um, one of the dangers, particularly with chat GPT, and, and I think this could be different in, with other uh, AI engines, but chat GPT answers questions, first of all, in the first person. So it'll say something like, well, I think blah, 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 blah. And um, so automatically it's kind of anthropomorphizing um, this exchange that you're having with essentially, you know, uh, a computer code. So that's the first thing. So it, it feels very authentic. Um, and one of the problems with that is it is well known even by its developers that it often answers questions incorrectly. And so it seems authentic. It seems like it knows what it's talking about. And then it tells you something that's absolutely untrue. So that's, a, that's, that's dangerous. And it's also dangerous because it does not um, give you any source code, any source material. So you don't know like, where is it getting its answers? I mean, at least when you go on Google and do a search, you choose which sources you're going to click on. Here, it just gives you a blanket answer and you don't know where it acquired that information. And the fact is it does not either. Um, so that's problematic. Um, and another problematic part of all of this is that we've seen in years past that some of this um, material is racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever it is that is dangerous and um, uh, is discriminatory. And then it kind of par can parrot it back to you. So that is also uh, a danger. I mean, Honestly, it's kind of cool. It looks and it's fun. If you're only doing stuff that's fun and is kind of ultimately meaningless, um, but it is dangerous if you're trying to find out, say, the truth about something. So for people who are unfamiliar with this, they might be thinking, well, you could have encountered those same problems just by Googling something. Some things are garbage. Some things are good. You have quality links and nonsense links. Why is this more problematic? Um, when you Google something, you can see what the source is. So you know if it's the New York Times or if it's the Daily Caller, you know, that's your choice. You can click on either of those. In this case, it's clearly been trained on, you know, masses and masses of data. I think in my piece, I said that um, GPT-3, which was the predecessor to GPT-4, was trained on the equivalent, the word count equivalent of 90 million novels. So it's been trained on basically everything that its developers can scrape off the internet and no one knows what that is. And so when it's coming up with an answer, you don't know whether it is actually pulling the answer from, um, you know, the Daily Caller or the New York Times. So it's, you know, you just don't know. And, and that's what's problematic. And when you do these experiments, my son was home from college and was giving us a demonstration. And he started by uh, asking it a question um, about backcountry skiing in the Northeast, which I've written a few books about. And it essentially pulled up summaries of things that I'd written without plagiarizing me, which was very impressive, uh, that it could avoid a verbatim theft. Um, but then it would also get, as you say, it would get things wrong. And you mentioned in your article in The New Yorker, you uh, 
had it summarize your book, Summer Hours at the Robbers Library, and it got a bunch of things right, but one key thing wrong. So I think that seamless integration of right and wrong, uh, you know, one of the things my son said was, and I know, you know, a big issue that's coming up now is the use of these um, chat GPT and its ilk in school assignments. Um, for him in college, what he explained was, well, he said, this is basically kind of high school writing, and you might be able to get away with this in high school, but you can't, um, you can't just submit this in college. Um, and, but that leaves an awful lot of students in high school and down who can use this. How do you view, what do you view as some of the bigger problems in, in that regard? Um, I think I think Jasper is right. Um, the the level of writing, um, as it were, and this stuff is pretty, you know, it's pretty low rent. Um, you know, I've asked it to write essays about this thing or that thing. And a lot of times they're just, it's just like a lot of words that kind of come together and don't necessarily, when you kind of pay attention to it, make a whole lot of sense. Um, but which, even- Which is think, not unlike some of the things I've <laughs> submitted in high school. Okay. But but even when even when you do that, you know, yeah, it, you know, maybe high school kids will use it in that particular way. But there's going to be a certain overlap. If everyone is using the same prompt, they're likely to get the same answer. It's going to be fairly clear. The other thing is that that some of the the companies are are working on a way to put. Um, like a, a watermark on it so that at least if if the kids are pulling it directly from from the um ai it'll show you know maybe they'll sh it'll show where it's coming from um you know kids cheat and um, i don't i'm not sure you know a lot of kids are already pulling stuff off of wikipedia or off, off of spark notes or whatever they're doing and this just gives them another opportunity to cheat but um, I think for college, I, Jasper's right. The stuff is 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 pretty um, anodyne, and it's it's not necessarily all that uh, thoughtful. Um, I did manage to get it to outline for me um, uh, Gravity's Rainbow, which is a really difficult book to read, um, and I wasn't unpleasant. I wasn't, you know, I thought, well, this is kind of cool. I mean, now maybe I don't have to read the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it will have some effects on schools. Um, it's more likely to have of effects on, um, on, on work and on business. What's your biggest concern at this point? And it's evolving so rapidly, but at this moment in time. Uh, my biggest concern is that it's going to be used for disinformation and misinformation as we go forward um, in our very fractured political life. And this week, uh, the New York Times had a story on the evolution of right-wing AI so that people, you know, the, the charge was made that, well, this is, you know, what it, what it gives you, the so-called artificial intelligence gives you things with a uh, purportedly liberal bias. And so now, and it was giving examples like, um, the right-wing AI, when asked who's the greatest president, would now say Donald Trump, whereas uh, perhaps ChatGPT would not give an answer to that. It would, in fact, say we don't give 
political, you know, we don't uh, opinions here. Um, that seemed the threat there of further building even deeper silos and alternate realities where people can now have beliefs and misinformation affirmed uh, right at their fingertips with these uh, right-wing responses. What are your thoughts on that? I, to I totally agree with that. I think it's it's a real danger and we're getting farther along in that because there are also AI engines that are allowing people to um, insert uh, a voice sample so the AI learns what the voice sounds like, and then they can have it say whatever they want it to say with that person's voice. So you could have, you know, Joe Biden saying, you know, we are now going to war against Russia. And it will seem like, hey, you know, like war of the world, we're really going to go do that. Um, and then there are other AIs that are doing the same thing with video. So it will actually look like the president of the United States is declaring war on another country. And so, you know, the, the only benefit of all of this is that maybe we actually have to um, get together and see each other in person. <laughs> I've often thought that the, uh, you know, one of the reasons that, I mean, Trump, I think the Washington Post determined he had uh, said over 30,000 lies in his four years in office. It had a daily tracker of Trump lies. And it worked for a while, partly because of the shock value. You know, as humans, we're, we don't expect that somebody we're looking in the face would just lie directly to us. So you kind of go along with it until proven otherwise. You certainly don't expect a presidential leader. Yes, politicians lie. We know that. But you're still unaccustomed to the idea that a political leader, a president, would use a national forum, a national stage, and just say things that were not a little untrue, but were entirely fabricated. I think that's part of the shock value here, is having something just state to you, weaving fact and fiction seamlessly, and spinning it back to you, it becomes, you know, its own, it just takes truth and, and kicks out yet another leg from under the wobbly table that truth is right now. Correct. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's something that we are not really able to handle. And, you know, because I think our basic instinct is when someone tells us something, they're telling us something that's true. Um, obviously, Trump um, did a lot to damage that assumption, but now we have this synthetic way of lying to people where it's going to be very, very hard to understand what we're seeing and, and how it may be weaponized is really terrifying. In your travels as a journalist, you, um, as any good journalist does, you, you kind of go back and forth between worlds, uh, between red states and blue states, right wing, red, uh, left wing. Are you finding that you're in, uh, often encountering people now who just truly believe a, a different fact set about what is going on in the world, what is happening right now? Absolutely. Um, I 
had the great fortune and fun of traveling around New Hampshire doing during the midterms. And um, I was at a school where they were uh, voting. Uh, it was a polling place. And there were lots of um, people running for office holding their signs outside of the school. Um, they were to one, all but one of them was a Republican because it's New Hampshire. Um, and, you know, the Democrat who was running obviously understood that he had absolutely no chance of winning, um, but he was doing it as a public service, I think. But anyhow, I was talking to um, these fellows and um, uh, I started to talk to one guy and another guy. The first thing that happened was he he tapped the guy I was talking to on the shoulder and, and he said, do you know who she is? And the guy said, no. He said, she's from the liberal media. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, probably, uh, <laughs> like, you know, fine. And and he said, well, you shouldn't talk to her. And I said, no, you absolutely should talk to me. You should tell me what you want people to know because I'm not going to distort it. I will tell people what you tell me. And one of the first things he told me was that in that building, they were teaching students that there were 41 genders. And uh, I was like, wow, that's really amazing. Um what are they? And he said, I don't know. I just know that that's what they're doing, um, which I found, you know, slightly humorous, um, slightly worrisome. What do you do when you, as I you know, encounter somebody who just simply believes, you know, is telling you things that you know to be completely false? Where do you begin as a reporter to kind of bridge that divide? Well, I mean, to, to some extent, like I, I thought it was nutty and I I had no desire to like do a gotcha or make the guy look like an idiot, um, even though I thought it was really silly. Um, but, you know, he said other things about the electoral system or about Donald Trump or about, you know, other stuff like that, that um, seemed worthy of of writing about or at least, you know, quoting him. Um so, I mean, I think you just have to be mindful of not making fun of people or, you know, doing something that will make other people feel uncomfortable with what you're doing. I mean, this happens all the time where people tell me, like, I talked to a guy the other day um, and I I said, I want to understand your position on something. And he was like, oh, I'm not going to talk to you you already know what I think. And I already know what you're going to do with what I think. And I was like, I said, but don't you want me to quote you rather than, you know, having you assume that I'm going to say something that, you know, may or may not be true about you. And he's like, no, I, I don't want to talk to you. So that's, ha that's happened a bit. One of the things you were in New Hampshire for recently was, um, to cover Nikki Haley, the South Carolina governor and now presidential candidate. And you wrote that Haley's gift is to come across as a moderate while espousing immoderate views and surrounding herself with extremists. What did you see at her campaign events? And um, why is she running? And does she have a chance? So let's say she has no chance. Um, and. You know, people said that to me when I said I was going there, like, why are you covering this woman? She has no chance. But first of all, she certainly has a chance of being someone's vice president. I think that's 
sort of a given. I mean, she's a South Asian woman from the South. So she, you know, just if you're doing the demographic game, um, you know, she becomes a, a viable um, pawn in this game in the same way that, you know, Kamala Harris was for the Democrats. So I think that's the first thing. Um, but the second thing that struck me when I was listening to her was that because she comes across as being a really nice person and a really reasonable person, she's not a crazy person. Um, you know, she's not she's not a Carrie Lake, you know, or a, or a you know Marjorie Taylor Greene. She comes across as a intelligent, thoughtful person and a nice person. Um, the problem is that that person um, is injecting all sorts of really hateful things um, into the zeitgeist, but sounding really reasonable while she's doing it. And I think I think it kind of makes that kind of rhetoric much more acceptable. And, you know, she says, you know, we have to build the wall or, you know, make sure that pedophiles aren't teaching in our schools or, you know, stuff like that. And you're just like listening and people are going, yeah, you're right. We definitely need to do all of those things. And it, and, but it's coming across as just the most reasonable thing ever in the world. And I found that to be really, really um, dangerous and scary um, because she's, you know, she's not a Trump, she's not a DeSantis. And um, she, while she may not have the chance to run, you know, to be a president right now, she could be a vice president and she could be a president after that. Sue, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your uh, journalism journey, how you got into this. Well, David, it is a circuitous uh, journey. <laughs> um, you know, I always wanted to be a writer um, and um, didn't really know how to do that. But I and I also, you know, I went to graduate school and I got a PhD and thought I might teach, but at the same time, and so I was teaching and I was also writing for various publications. Um, my first journalism job was with a little newspaper in the Berkshires called the Berkshire Eagle, which turns out to be a fabulous newspaper. And um, I, I loved it. Um, but anyhow, I was an academic also briefly and while writing for various publications. And then I just decided that I would much rather write for various publications than be an academic. So um, I was freelancing. I spent a long time freelancing. I covered, I was a contract writer for the New York Times and I covered upstate New York for a couple of years um, because they thought of upstate New York as, you know, Westchester. Um, and we know it's, you know, not that. It's a very large state. Um, and then I just kept um, freelancing and writing for various magazines and mostly magazines, not not newspapers, um, and also writing a lot of books. Was the thing I really did was spend a lot of time writing books um, and um, also writing for the New York Review of Books, which uh, is sort of a hybrid between journalism and something else. I don't know quite what you would say, but um, and while I was doing that, um, I was writing a lot about technology. Um, I was one of the very first people to write about the internet as we know it now. Um, and so 
I had a certain expertise and I just kept sort of pushing on that. And I also, my PhD is in politics. And so I just found myself writing at this intersection of politics and technology. And, um, and that's what I do. <laughs> what is it that, uh, talk about what you do at Middlebury. So years ago, I had this idea that um, I really wanted students to learn how to write a narrative and how to structure a story. But I didn't want to do it in a very traditional way. I had this idea that um, it would be fun to do it as um, audio, to do audio. And, um, and this was before podcasting was a thing. Um, and so um, I was able to convince um, the editor of Middlebury Magazine, a wonderful guy named Matt Jennings, to support this effort. And so what I do is um, I select a group of kids at the beginning of the school year, um, and their job is to write profiles, write and record um, profiles of other students and we ask a simple question and that question is how did you get here and the answers could be very straightforward or they can be unbelievably circuitous and 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 so, something that you would never expect like we had a student profiled who grew up um in a village somewhere in i think she was in um tibet her father was an itinerant yak herder she was illiterate until he put her and her twin sister in a box um, and they spent a month getting transported with 30 other people in boxes on a truck um, to India. Um, and um, they think 20 of those people made it. So they would allow them to, they would be in the box during the day and then they would allow them to get out during the night. And she ended up in an orphanage in India. And then where she picked up a pencil for the very first time in her life. And she was, I think, like seven or eight. Um, and eventually her father was given asylum in the United States because he had become a, a monk. <laughs> it's a crazy story. Um, and so she really crazy York, story. came to New York. She learned English. She became like the valedictorian of her high school. I mean, this just goes on and on. And she ends up at Middlebury College. So, you know, we get stories like that. Um, so we so that's that's what we do, and we make these profiles, and then they get um, put on the internet, and also Middlebury Magazine um, takes them. And um, I think I've been doing it now for about twelve years. And so, because these students have learned how to interview, how to write a narrative, and they're not they are they are not narrated, so it's only the voice of the the student that you hear. Um, so they learn how to structure a story and um, how to edit on paper and how to edit on um, with our editing software. Um, and a, as a consequence of doing that for so long and at the beginning, um, when there were no podcasts, almost everyone who's gone through this program is now working either for public radio or for the New York Times, for the Daily or for any number of podcasting companies because they have this skill set when they come out of college that is fairly unusual. Huh. Okay. That is a way more fascinating and surprising uh, <laughs> answer than I th was expecting for what you do at Middlebury and what a, uh, what a huge and impactful, you know, 
when you began describing it, I thought this is this is kind of like the MS DOS of podcasting, like the most rudimentary basics, you know, record yeah. one interview. Um, yeah, they do. They 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 make uh, anywhere. They they typically make uh, three to four of these over the course of of the year. It's a full year program, and um, and then we have a listening event at the end of the year um, that everyone is invited to, and um, it's always a um, a kind of a big deal on campus, and um, I think people love it, and they learn a lot about the people that they're sitting next to in class that they might have had no idea about. Hmm. Fascinating, and I know that. Your daughter and son-in-law are in are in podcasting, and the yes. the audio medium has uh, kind of taken over in the next generation. My daughter is in podcasting. Well, um, my son-in-law was my student, so um, there you go. Okay, all right. Um, well, I want to go back to some of your recent reporting. Um, one of the things you did as a young journalist in the 80s working for Ms. Magazine was write about the new abortion pill at that time. And you wrote at that time, because you quote yourself in a, in a current article you write for The New Yorker, that, uh, you know, this idea of a pill that you could take for an abortion pretty much would spell the end of the anti-abortion movement. Um, but fast forward 40 years, uh, what are you finding now on the new attack against abortion, you know, medication abortions, which now comprise more than half of all abortions in the country? Yeah, you know, I think that people thought um, naively that after Roe v. Wade was overturned, that the states would, you know, that didn't want to have uh, uh, abortions in their states would, you know, it have those laws um, enforced, and that would be the end of it, you know, and your life would go on. Um, but in fact, that decision, I think, emboldened uh, the right to life movement to now pursue other avenues. Um, and one of the avenues that they're pursuing is trying to get a drug that was approved 23 years ago by the FDA um, to get, take it off the shelves. And, um, it's kind of a shocking development. I don't think anyone really foresaw that mostly because that drug has been used so frequently and so effectively for 23 years, but they came up with a, a spurious argument. Um, and the argument is so crazy. Um, but it has to do with the word illness and whether or not pregnancy is an illness. And they're arguing that when the FDA approved this drug, um, they approved it even though in the FDA rules at the time, they weren't approving anything other than illnesses and pregnancy was a condition. And I mean, it's just this like crazy, crazy argument, but they did this very creepy thing and set up um, an office in the district of maybe the most conservative judge on the most conservative circuit, um, a guy named Matthew Kaczmarek, who is a well-known anti-abortion advocate. Um, and it looks possible that he's going to agree with them. 
and issue a nationwide ban on this drug. And after that, all bets are off. This is the part of where we are right now that I find really confounding, which is the attack on medicine, the attack on science, uh, the attack right now on, you know, Dr. Fauci, uh, which has become, you know, Ron DeSantis's new battle cry is to go after the now retired uh, Dr. Fauci. And I keep coming back to, you know, there were so many stories during the pandemic of people in hospitals who had COVID arguing with their caregivers that they didn't have COVID because essentially Donald Trump told them it was all a hoax. And now we're making doctors the main target of anti-abortion laws um, with it's politically unacceptable to go after women for the moment. So the weakest link is to lock up the doctors, lock up healthcare providers who are in any way helping um, people who are, are pregnant. Um, so this idea of having politicians decide what drugs are passed, I mean, the world <laughs> that is being crafted out of this is not a place that even, you know, the people advancing this would want to be, you know, do you really want to go to a veterinarian for your heart condition? But that's where we are. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, um, just last week, I think, or in the last while, um, the state of Idaho made it uh, a felony to assist a minor going to get an abortion in another state. Um, in I think also in Idaho, um, they have made it a crime to help a woman who is having any sort of problem with a pregnancy that would require the doctor to, to save her life by giving her what would essentially be called uh, like a, an abortion, but obviously isn't you know, if they have an ectopic pregnancy, which, you know, threatens the life of the, of the mother. Um, and then they've, they've set this law that says you have four years that anyone related to that woman has four years to sue the doctor and claim that it was an abortion and that there's a minimum floor for the amount of money that they can get from the doctor. And that is $20,000. So anybody related to this woman who's had an ectopic pregnancy can claim that the doctor has pro provided an abortion service and can get $20,000 at least from that person. So why anyone thinks that any doctor is going to practice medicine in, in that state, um, practice, you know, OBGYM medicine in that state is like a lunatic because they're not going to, they can't. And so, yeah, it's like people are shooting themselves in the foot. Like um, mefepristone, the, the drug that they're trying to get off um, uh, the shelves is not just for abortions. It's for other pregnancy complications. Um, and so, you know, not everyone has a perfect pregnancy. And I think that people are going to be really surprised when they don't have OBGYN services and, and they don't have the kinds of medications that they need to, you know, solve problems that are eminently solvable. Well, and in fact, there are these expanding medical deserts, but in particular, OBGYN deserts, 
that are expanding around the country where, you know, we're hearing of obstetrical units in hospitals simply closing in some Western rural areas as a result of these practice, which is really a horrifying prospect um, that people who are pregnant have no place to go, you know, right. uh, and I, I will add just a personal anecdote. Last week I was in Utah and uh, I was chatting with two young women who were medical residents, OBGYN residents at the University of Utah. So I said, wow, <laughs> you're in a state that um, is on the verge of restrict, I think Utah is currently a 15 week ban abortion ban state, soon to move to a more restrictive, it may be six week. So I, I asked them, what are you gonna do? And one a student, first of all, they're sending these students to San Diego for abortion care training because they can't get it in Utah. Um, and they have to have that training to be licensed as OBGYNs in this country. So um, one said she will not practice in any state that makes doctors a target of anti-abortion laws. The other was much more conflicted. That, that person who said she wouldn't do there was from Indiana. The other was from Boston said she felt a real obligation, particularly to trans healthcare, and felt that she felt an obligation to provide those services in places where it was being most restricted because she worried about abandoning all these trans people who would have no place else to go. So, you know, right there, um, and I may have these young women on a future Vermont conversation because uh, they are the future. Um, and if young doctors, and as you say, why would they practice in states where they're targeted? So if they don't, um, what happens? <laughs> I, I, I know someone who's a, a nurse practitioner in Colorado um, who is providing services to women who are coming from Texas because they can't get services where they live. Um, and the problem is, you know, people of means will figure out a way to get what they need. Typically, I mean, if you're in an emergency situation, that may not be true, but typically. Um, so we're really talking about penalizing poor people and we're people who are uninsured and we're in the medical profession. That's the, those are the people who are, are sort of the targets of all of this. Yeah. You, uh, shifting gears, you wrote recently about a promising breakthrough with Alzheimer's drugs. What did you find in your reporting? So Alzheimer's is something that I've, you know, written about. I wrote a book about memory. And so it's something I've sort of kept my finger on. Um, and it's been really interesting because there really aren't any effective Alzheimer medications. I mean, even the ones that we have are you know, marginally effective. And it's it's a really depressing place to be if you're a practitioner, I think, and obviously if you're um, a person with this disease or a family member. Um, but, um, you know, the scientists have been really kind of trying to figure this out. And, and one of the questions that, that has sort of been at the forefront of this is, can we clear the plaques that that accumulate in the brains of Alzheimer's patients? Can we clear them? And if we can clear them, will that restore memory or will it at least halt the progression of this disease? And 
for 20 years, that's the question that's been asked. And for 20 years, the answer has been no, <laughs> it's not working. Um, but very recently, um, a Japanese pharmaceutical company called Isai um, had, had reasonably good results and reasonably is within a margin of like very small, <laughs> but reasonably good results that were at least different from all the other ones that showed a, a slowdown of the progression of the disease by, I think they said 27%. Um, that 27% is, it's kind of a weird and notional number because everyone is different. Everyone reacts differently. Um, so for some people it would be longer, some people would be shorter. Um, and it's not really clear even what it means to slow down the progression of the disease, but um, people were doing better um, on the cognitive tests that they were given when they were on this disease, on this drug. So um, it's called now, I think the um, commercial name of this drug is something like Lequembi. Um, all of the drugs have like completely unintelligible names, but I think it's Lequembi. Um, it was given a kind of provisional approval by the FDA uh, in early in the early part of the year. Um, but it hasn't gotten the approval yet, the full approval of the FDA, which is what it would need to be able to get reimbursement from Medicare and Medicaid and ideally from uh, uh, insure, private insurers. It did get the approval not that long ago from the VA. So people who are qualified to take the drug and you have to be in the very, very early stages of, of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but those people who qualify and they are getting their healthcare through the VA can get uh, reimbursement because the drug costs something like $26,000 a year um, hmm. if you're not getting reimbursed. Hmm. Um, I wanna circle back to uh, where we began our conversation, which is something you've been reporting on a lot and that's election vulnerabilities. And you know, I'm wondering two years, uh, two and a half years after the 2020 election, you've been reported on you know election deniers in charge of elections the vul the technical vulnerabilities that we began our conversation with what concerns you the most circa 2023 and as we head into the 2024 presidential election where is the most problematic or likely avenue for mischief well you know, this is an interesting question because I think that if you ask different people, you get different answers. But one of the things that really has bothered me since 2020 was the fact that we had election officials in states uh, around the country, so particularly Michigan, Colorado, and uh, Georgia, who were election deniers, who did believe that, um, you know, Donald Trump was the rightful winner of of the election, um, who invited hackers essentially into their offices to download the software that runs the systems. And also in some of the cases, some of the other parts of the system. So, you know, electric, uh, electronic poll books and that sort of stuff that has, you know, everyone's registration on it. Um, and then they uploaded that information to the cloud um, and shared it with other people. Um, in some cases, shared it with anybody. And um, while the company that was hacked the most, which is Dominion uh, Software, 
basically said, well, you know, we've we've patched the system, so it doesn't matter that these people have stolen our software. Um, but the fact is that they have stolen the software and the software is out there. And people who are talented at this stuff um, will understand how to manipulate the systems that um, that most people vote on. So that really worries me. And what also worries me is the fact that um, the FBI um, knows about this, um, is you know quite aware of it. Um, and so far, we've seen no indictments. We've seen the fact that essentially all of these people have gotten away with it. So that's worrisome. And and you know even if they don't have the wherewithal to manipulate the software, they have another way of doing damage. And that is to say to people, hey, we broke into the system. Everyone knows we broke into the system. The system is insecure. Of course it flips votes. I mean, they have they're sort of have a weird moral high ground by saying, you know, the very thing that they did is the very thing that makes the systems insecure. And the fact that the government has not prosecuted anybody yet for this stuff is 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 just mind-boggling. You've asked the question, and it strikes me it's it's sort of a theme, a motif in your reporting, the underlying question, which is can our democracy endure? How do you answer that? You know, I want to believe that it can. I do. I mean, I think that it's one of the things that makes our country great. Um, it's one of the, you know, things that allows us to to go about our business and and you know, do our work and be with each other and meet each other sort of on common ground. But um, I've just become just so concerned that that there is there are people for whom the rule of law, which is kind of a basic <laughs> um, fundamental part of, of our democracy, that the rule of law is kind of up for grabs. And that's just so worrisome to me. I mean, we have a Supreme Court that's essentially illegitimate. Um, we have people in government who don't believe in the, clearly don't believe in the rule of law. We have people who are trying to undermine the the two parts of our public life that are central to the preservation of democracy, and those are public schools and public libraries. We have people who are really gunning for those institutions. And so I'm, you know, I'm deeply worried. And I'm deeply worried that the the people who are trying to maintain this democracy are kind of uh, working are, are are on the case a little bit too late and and they're not quite as wily as the people who are trying to undermine it. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Sue Halpern, <laughs> I, I want on that sobering note. I I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont conversation. Thank you David and I'm sorry I'm such a bummer outer. <laughs> no worries. <laughs>